Good singing. Good morning. Hey, I'm Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here. We want to welcome you. We want to welcome all watching online as well. Uh, thanks for watching the live stream uh, today. And uh, you heard Pastor Todd's um, warning to you because he has no idea what I'm going to say. Wow, sounds so scandalous when you say it like that. Uh, the reason he's saying that is because we're going to be talking about gender uh, today, a marriage, um, and relationships. Okay, so consider that as you are here with whomever you're here with. I'm going to say a word of prayer, and we're going to dig in. You can go to Genesis chapter 1, by the way, Genesis chapter 1, right there in the beginning. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you that we get to be here today, out of the rain, into the, into the dry uh, comfort of, the, of this, this place with these people, Lord, whether we're new here coming in or we've been here a long time, we pray that this would pe- feel like a, a safe place for us and a place where we can get to know one another and build relationships uh, in the body of Christ, Lord. As I preach, give me wisdom as I preach that you might challenge us from your word. Challenge our culture, challenge our presuppositions. May we seek you and find your, your calling as we consider some of the most important and fundamental questions about humanity in this series. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series we're calling Origin Stories. It's a series through the book of Genesis. We're exploring fundamental questions of existence Questions that everybody asks, whether you're religious or you're not religious at all, we all ask questions like, you know, who is God if he exists? And who are we and why are we here? And what went wrong anyway in this world? And is there any hope for humanity? These are the kinds of questions that the book of Genesis seeks to ask and and answer and explore. And we are exploring a story, an origin story from Genesis, it forms the very foundation of the Judeo-Christian worldview today, and we're telling this story against the backdrop of the dominant story in our Western culture today, what we're calling modern secularism, and its foundations. We're kind of comparing it, exploring it, contrasting those stories, Uh, and if you aren't a Christian, maybe you're exploring your faith or you don't really know much about this, my hope is that It would help you discern some of the distinctions. And quite frankly, I want to persuade you. I want to persuade you that we have a better story offered in the Word of God. And if you're already a Christian, you're already a person that follows Jesus, that that this series would be used to help build your resilience as, as a disciple, to be able to discern the messages coming to you from our culture and discern that from uh, the Word of God in the Bible. And so that's what we're trying to do. Now, If you've been here the last four weeks, you notice that we're four weeks in and we haven't made it out of Genesis 1, and there's 50 chapters, so you're doing some quick math, and you're like, man, Nate, are we ever going to be done this series? Uh, I promise you we're going to go slow in the beginning until we get to Genesis 3, and then we'll start speeding up the stories as we go along, so don't worry. Uh, One of the reasons that we're going as slow and methodical as we are is because right here in Genesis 1... Um, it it talks about the importance of the imago Dei. That is the Latin phrase for the image of God. That humankind is made in the image of God, and we're exploring what that means from Genesis 1, 26 to 28. You might remember Pastor Terry a few weeks ago using the illustration. He brought in his mirror from home, and he said the image of God is kind of like a reflection. 
not so much that we, that God, you know, has the same eyes, ears, nose that we humans have, but there's something about our essence, something about who we are and our purpose that reflects the very image of God. And so, so far we've seen three of those. I want to summarize uh, aspects of the, of the, the image of God uh, that mankind possesses. One, the image of God tells us that we have been created for relationship with God. The most vital relationship that humans can have is a relationship with God. And we are made in his image so that we can have that relationship. Secondly, it's a call to join a mission. The image of God means that he calls us to a great purpose, to bless the world. And then thirdly, being made in the image of God means that all human beings are made with inherent dignity and worth. We looked at that last week. So today we want to hold up the mirror one more time, and we want to see how the Imago Dei speaks to the topics of gender and marriage and relationships. You might say, well, Nate, man, I mean, do you not have enough drama in your life that you want to tackle this subject today? Well, you have to ask Shannon or you know, people that know me whether or not to know I have enough drama or not. Uh, but we cannot study Genesis 1 and 2 without talking about these vital topics. You can't at least study it with a level of integrity because their prominence is all over the first two chapters. It's the very beginning of human relationships, and so we need to talk about it here. Of course, the topics of gender and marriage today are freighted with a lot of confusion, polarization, um, personal opinion, uh, wouldn't you say, as you look around the cultures, you hear the conversations in our culture today? I, I want to think about this with an illustration. When I was um, growing up, I grew up in, in uh, Pennsylvania near Hawk Mountain. Any of you know where Hawk Mountain is? Any of you ever hike Hawk Mountain? I grew up right there at the base of Hawk Mountain. So my friends and I, we would all explore the area all the time, walk in the trails. And occasionally, we would be walking trail, we might be a few miles in, and for whatever reason, the trailhead just like disappears. The trail disappears. Uh, there's no more signposts. There's no more paint on the trees. It's all overgrown. And you're sitting there being like, well, what do we do now? Uh, should we hack through the brush and hope that the trail opens up again on the other side? Well, what if we get in and then we start getting lost? Do we turn around and we start hiking back miles to the trailhead? It's kind of a disorienting, dislocating sort of feeling. In a lot of ways, I think that's where we are in our culture today on this, these topics. We sort of feel like we've lost the trail in society on these topics. And some of us feel this way because we have marriage wounds, either our own marriages that fell apart or the marriages that we grew up in, the homes that we grew up in. And so we sort of swore off the institution of marriage altogether, or we have sworn off the opposite sex altogether. For some of us, we here, there's some people here that do not feel at home with their own bodies or might experience gender confusion. There's certainly many of us that just feel like we, we're sort of lost, we've lost in the woods, we've lost the trail in the cultural dialogue on these subjects. Like we can't even talk about this anymore. You listen in on the next conversation that you hear, trying to explore, touching on the possible differences between men and women. Or the next conversation you hear talking about whether gender is binary or fluid. And if that conversation is at all public, you will notice its tone is very sheepish and measured. Most of the time, those conversations get very awkward very quickly. 
or the words themselves begin to move in circles around each other or are self-contradictory, a lot of times they'll end abruptly and people will walk away out of fear of what might be said. Am I making this up or do you notice this too? Yeah? We've, we've lost the trail, I think, in our culture. Now, how we lost this trail is a sermon for another day. It's, I touched actually on the, the how or the why a couple of years ago in a sermon series we called Blueprints or Gospel Blueprints. But the blurring or the bending or the erasing of gender distinction and the relationships between, it, between men and women, it's indeed a playbook, comes right from the playbook of modern secularism today. To continue the metaphor, modern secularism tells us to sort of grab our hatchet, grab our tools, and hack through the brush and clear your own path and go wherever you feel you would like to go. That's sort of the message of modern secularism. Take your own path. But from a Christian worldview, we all hear these questions from a Christian lens about gender and relationships, and we need to make sure that these conversations are rooted deeply in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And here in Genesis, it provides a way, it's like a pathfinder through the thicket to rediscover the ancient paths that God intended us to travel. And so we don't, we don't have time in this message to explore all of our questions. And, and let me make no mistake, I do not have all the answers to all modern day's questions. I don't. But I do want to explore one question that I believe Genesis 1 and 2 speak directly to, and it's this question, why gender? Why did God make gender anyway? I mean, why not just make everybody exactly alike? What's the purpose of gender? We're going to discover at least two reasons informed by this idea of the Imago Dei, of the image of God. Now, let me frame this message with one more very important comment. Today, we are looking at God's intention for gender, his intention for gender. We are not exploring in depth God's, uh, or, or rather, we might say, the human experience of gender and marriage. And the distance between God's intent and our human reality, our experience, has everything to do with Genesis chapter 3 and the fracturing of the shalom, that is the peace of God and, and uh, the relationship with God and the world and ourselves. Now, we will get there in Genesis 3, but today is more about intent. So keep that in mind. It's sort of whetting the appetite to get to Genesis chapter 3, to ask some of those questions, those what-if questions about the human experience, but we need to start with intent today. So two reasons for gender um, as displaying the Imago Dei. First is displaying the equality and the diversity of God. Displaying the equality and the diversity of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Again, we're going to look at this, uh, this text like we did last week. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It is popular in the world in which we live today to peg the Bible as misogynistic. You hear that sometimes? This actually couldn't be further from the truth. In reality, it is the Judeo-Christian worldview 
that built the platform for equality between men and women. When Moses first put uh, reed to papyrus and wrote down the words of Genesis 1.27, it was very big news in the ancient world. The ancient world, which and the nations which surrounded the Jewish people had a very uh, clear hierarchy, which went like this. Kings were made in the image of the gods. Nobles were a little bit lower than them. Men a little bit lower than them. And then somewhere all the way down the cosmological chain were slaves and women. Sorry, women. That was the ancient world surrounding the Jewish people. And into that contrast... The Bible pens these words that all people, even slaves and women, equally bear the image of God as much as the king. These words would have been scandalous in the ancient world surrounding the Jewish people. Even more than that, they threaten the very social fabric of the nations. So contrast the Bible's equality with the ancient world, ancient philosophers, ancient religious or sacred writings, and you will find that those ancients either denigrated women or ignored their existence completely. Take Plato, for example, not like the Plato that you play with, the Plato, the philosopher. You know, we all love Plato, right? Do you know that Plato located the origin of women saying that women are essentially Uh, have their origin in men who led previously cowardly or unrighteous lives. Don't like Plato as much anymore, do you? (laughs) And yet the Bible's insistence on equality and its influence on the origin of equal rights that we enjoy today in Western society stand clear. See, there's a reason that the Bible insists on equality. And the reason is because without equality, we would not be able to bear the image of God. Why? Well, because human equality mirrors the relationship within the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit within the Trinity. Remember, Genesis 1.26 says, let us, God says, make mankind in our image. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of the same substance, have the same power, and glory. And so he made man and woman as equal image bearers of God to display that union and unity and equality, which means to live this out, we must be people that treat all people with equal dignity and worth. As the philosopher Martin Buber once said, therefore, every relationship among humankind ought to be an I and thou relationship Never an I and it relationship. Equality, bearing the image of God. The Imago Dei does not only speak to equality, though. It also speaks to diversity, the diversity of God. In making man and woman two distinct, differentiating beings biologically and functionally, it displays the diversity of God. Now, modern secularism, we need to understand cheers the value of equality between men and women. That is certain, and and they ought to do so. However, they often struggle to value the diversity and the differentiation of male and female in conversations today. Treating men and women as uh, uh, completely the same in every way or as going as far as to erase 
gender distinction altogether, this has massive implications in our world, in our society, on families, on marriage, on students and children. And some, even proponents of this, fear that we might be going too far as a society, whether it's the impact on sports or on locker rooms or the proliferation of pl- pr- uh, pronouns or, or, uh, or gender identities or hormone therapy for girls and boys who just uh, began or are beginning puberty, whether it's questions about transitioning or detransitioning, as some are doing, even many feminists are realizing that they're losing their grip on the distinction of womanhood and women's rights altogether. This has massive implications. So the Bible would speak into this confusion, this erasing of distinction with very clear, a very clear path that when we remove gender distinction, we lose a vital part of what it means to bear the image of God. See, God intended binary gender that directly ties to our biological sex, male and female, from the very beginning. Now, why would he do that? Because we bear the image of God. And who is God? God is diverse, equal in essence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in power and glory, but they are not the same, are they? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not the same. They're distinct persons with distinct functions. They're not interchangeable, nor do they change in their essence and their functions. And so just as we marvel and just as we celebrate the equality and the the diversity within the Trinity, we so ought to marvel and celebrate the fundamental distinctions and functions between men and women. As Dr. Sam Andrades, who uh, wrote the book Engendered, he was uh, a guest speaker at at a forum that we had a couple of years ago. He said this, a man properly oriented toward the giver of his life should arise in the morning singing loudly in gratitude that he is a man, the image of God. And a woman ought to exalt in being a woman as if it is the best thing in the world to be the image of God. This is what it would mean to receive what we have been given with the weighted gift or as the weighted gift of God's self, end quote. Now you might say, okay, all right, I, I, maybe I'll give you the, the, you know, the reality that there's... Uh, distinction in biology between men and women, right? But what exactly does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? Are these things just biological sex and chromosomes and body parts? Or is there more to it? Does a real man mean that, you know, you love sports and smoking cigars and whiskey and shooting guns? Is that what it means? Does being a real woman mean that you like wearing dresses and sipping tea and watching Lifetime movies or rom-coms? What about the sensitive boy who likes show tunes and drama? What about the rough and tumble little girl who would prefer wearing a football helmet instead of a tiara? What do you do with these things? You know, when I was eight, my favorite movie was the musical Annie. Like the, like the 80s version. And because it had a, I had a connection with my grandmother, it was something that my grandmother and I liked to do together. We'd watch it. And I would sometimes dance around the house singing loudly, the sun will come out tomorrow. And my two older brothers would make fun of me really 
not so, not, not so kindly. I won't share with you what they said to me. But what was it that they said? They were essentially saying, hey, stop doing that because what? Boys don't sing and dance, especially Annie. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I grew up as a wrestler and football player. You know, I played sports. But can I tell you, I, I secretly would peek into the, the drama club and I would, I, I, man, that's where I want to be. I want to be up there on that stage. I want to be singing. I want to be dancing. But in the backward 90s place that I grew up and the school I grew up, grew up in, I, I couldn't do that unless I wanted to hand in my man card. Because that's kind of how it was thought of. You see, if our understanding of what is a woman or what is a man is limited in rigid, hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine stereotypes, or if it's based on the modern, secular, uh, gender-fluid ideology, we are in the woods. In either extreme, we are in the woods. We need to look at Genesis. We need to go back to Genesis chapter 2 to really explore and begin to get at some of the answers to what does it mean to be a man or a woman. While Genesis 1 is primarily focused on the equality of man and woman, Genesis 2 highlights some of the distinct functions designed for each other. Now, this is really important. I would argue that the primary way that God designed gender distinction to be on display is in vital relationship with the opposite gender, most profoundly in the, in the institution of marriage. Let me say that one more time, that the primary way that God designed gender distinction, what is a man, what is a woman, is to be on display in vital relationship with the opposite sex, and the most profound or vital of those relationships is marriage. In studying the scriptures and reading broadly about these subjects, Every time that the Bible, almost every time that the Bible talks about gender, it talks about it in relationship to opposite sex, and primarily in marriage. Now, does that mean that if you're single, that gender doesn't matter? No, absolutely not. But we learn most about gender distinction in looking at how a husband and wife relate to one another. And so let me say this, God's second purpose of creating gender is to display the purpose of God primarily through opposite gender relationships in marriage, okay? Now, one of the stories that married couples like to tell, if you ask them, and maybe you have, is how they met and how they fell in love, right? This is something that couples like to share. You know, who chased who? Um, Was it love at first sight? Uh, In Ryan's case with Katie, it clearly took a while Uh, for Katie to feel the same way as one could understand. How did he pop the question? These are the kinds of questions. These are the kind of questions that we ask. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, it is a love story. Albeit it's a very short love story, but it is a love story between boy and girl, how boy met girl, and even that they got married, and even a hint of a consummation. All right there in a handful of verses. I want to show you a few of the aspects of this and highlight how it reveals God's purpose for gender in marriage. Notice that among the resounding refrain, behold, 
it was good, all throughout Genesis chapter 1. We get to Genesis 2.18, and the jarring statement kind of hits us right between the eyes. That one thing was not good, and that was that man was alone. You say, well, what do you mean man was alone? He was with God. How could he be alone? He had all these creatures. He had a great purpose, good work to do, and yet something was incomplete. Something was missing. And God knew that was missing, but Adam Adam hadn't yet figured it out. And so God's intent was to help Adam figure out that there was something missing. And so what did he do? Well, notice in verses 19 and 20, God brings all the animals to Adam to name. And I kind of picture this of like, you know, this, this, I'm sure it didn't look like this, but I picture like, you know, boy, girl, goat, all right? You know, boy, girl, chicken, all right? Boy, girl, donkey, okay? Platypi, okay? Um, man's best friend, you know, boy, girl, dog, okay? And, they, and he names all these animals, but it says there is no one quite suited for Adam. I think what God was doing is helping Adam realize that there's, I have a deep need, a deep desire for some kind of companionship with someone like me of my own kind. He needed an intimate ally for life. And so God set out to do something about it. So he puts Adam in a sleep. He takes out from Adam's side to create a woman. And then we get to peer into the first wedding ceremony in the Bible right there in the garden. Do you see it? What happens? Verse 22, God walks Eve down the aisle of the garden, as it were, and brings Eve to Adam's side to commence a relationship together. And Adam breaks out in song, verse 23. It doesn't look particularly like a song, but trust me, it's an ancient Hebrew song. Verse 23, he says, quite literally, at last, he shouts, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He sings, at last, someone fit for me. What is it that God made? He made a helper suitable for him. Now, this is an amazing phrase, although it's often misunderstood. When we read the word helper here, don't think of helper like the intern that you hire to grab you coffee while you do your important work. That's not what helper means. It's not a denigrating term. This word helper is actually uh, used in scripture as a military strength kind of word. It's, it's used to describe reinforcements sent to the battlefield where there's, where there's real need in the battlefield. God uses this very word to describe himself, that he is Israel's helper. So Eve is created to be a strength, but a particular kind of strength, a helper suitable or fit, it might say. Now, this word suitable or fit comes from two Hebrew words, like opposite. So this is what it says. Eve was created to be a strong, like opposite him. That's how the Hebrew reads. A strong, like opposite. You say, well, which one is it? Like or opposite? It's both. It's a complement. It's like two puzzle pieces that fit together. If those puzzle pieces looked exactly alike, they wouldn't fit together. And yet, if those puzzle pieces looked complete opposite, they wouldn't fit together. It's complementary like opposites. This was God's intent. Similar but different. 
This is God's design for marriage and its clear intentions we look at verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Let me put it succinctly like this. God made male and female, husband and wife, for complementary oneness. For complementary oneness. This is not just speaking about one flesh in terms of intercourse, although it is a clear demonstration of the complementary oneness in the equipment that God has given men and women, right? But it's profound complementary oneness emotionally, helping each other in areas of strength and weakness functionally in ways that it's even hard to fully grasp until we see a healthy marriage at work and you see the complementary oneness together. In our better moments as a couple, we can see this so clearly, complementary oneness, that while we are so different, and believe me, at times frustratingly different, we see that we go together. We need each other like bread needs butter. This is how God designed it. Why would God be so intentional to create this complementary oneness? Because it images who God is. Are you getting getting the idea yet? This is who God is. God, the Godhead displays complementary oneness. See, the, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they don't all have the same function, do they? Put it this way. God is love, right? We would all agree God is love. It's like one of the main things we know about God. God is love. But the action and the function of their love within the Godhead is shaped differently. Take, for example, our salvation. In love, the Father decrees the plan of salvation and enacts the plan. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? He decrees and enacts the plan. In love, the Son, Jesus Christ, becomes the instrument and the embodiment of love, providing salvation, providing a way for humankind to dwell with God forever by forgiving our sins, becoming a sacrifice for us on the cross. And in love, guess what? The third person of the, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, secures and sustains our salvation until the day that we inherit it one day when we die. See, a loving display of complementary oneness in form and function right there in the Godhead. This is what we're designed to complement. Now, we don't have time to fully explore how all of the ways that this works in marriage, but let me just say that love is designed to be displayed in a complementary oneness kind of way, in different functions as husbands and wives. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, is probably the most succinct way of describing complementary oneness in the New Testament. And I'll summarize two ideas for you. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, calls husbands to the loving function of sacrificial leadership of their wives. And it is directed towards what she needs and what she desires most. Things that come right from her nature, things like protection and and security and a sense that her emotional and her spiritual needs are flourishing. Now, this is a broad function that can be fulfilled in traditional ways and less traditional ways, but every husband, if you're married, you should be asking questions like, where am I leading my wife and my family? How am I leading her heart 
What might, makes my wife feel secure? Is my leadership helping her to thrive? Find out what that means for your wife. Ask her these questions. If security to your wife means that she needs you to learn judo, then go take judo classes, okay? But if security to your wife means giving her a big hug at the end of the day and listening to her and playing with her hair, then do that. For my wife, that might look different than your wife, okay? So husbands to the loving function of sacrificial leadership. Ephesians also says that wives are called to the loving function of strengthening the honor of their husbands, which goes to their very natural needs and desires most. For things like respect and encouragement and motivation and comfort. Again, these are broad Broadly fulfilled functions in many traditional and non-traditional ways, but wives should be asking questions like, what encourages my husband most? Where is he vulnerable that I can help comfort and strengthen him? What ways can I help him feel like a man? Find out what that means for him. If telling your husband, man, you have just the strongest arms, helps him feel honored, and encouraged and motivated, then tell him that. If, if, um, if telling, if your husband feels like, man, he's overwhelmed, ask, tell, ask him, how can I help encourage you today? One of the greatest things that my wife does for me is that when I'm feeling overwhelmed or incompetent at work, she will come and tell me, I know it's hard, but I can't think of a better person to do the job than you. And she'll ask me, how can I help you? How can I help you? This is what I need. So let me just say this. Husbands and wives, you want to have better sex? Ever, all of you should go like this if you're married. Uh, yeah? You want to have better sex? Stop reading technique books. Stop getting your ideas from pornography. And start focusing on fulfilling your complementary oneness functions in relationship with each other. Wives should say, Amen. All right. Uh, let me say a few words and close with talking to young men and young women, particularly those that aren't married. We talked a lot about marriage, and this isn't just about marriage, this is also for singles. Let me talk to young, young men first, okay? Young men shooting. A gun or shooting a basketball isn't what makes you a man. Masculinity is not found in chasing self-pleasure, whether it's pornography or, or money or fame on social media or sexual conquest. This isn't what it means to be a man. We are not most manly when we are holed up alone with our headset gaming for hours and hours. This isn't what makes us a man. We might enjoy some of these things, but these things are not what makes us a man. We discover our distinctly gendered purpose. We discover our manhood in relationship, and primarily in the relationship with the opposite gender. You want to display your masculinity? You want to work on your masculinity, whether single or desiring marriage? Work on your honor and work on honoring women. Do hard things and do hard things for women to their benefit. Stand up for what is right with courage and practice self-sacrifice. 
protection. Protect the relationships with the women that are in your life now. Protect your mom and your grandmom and your sister and your friends and your sisters in Christ that are here. This is manhood. Young ladies, let me talk to you for a moment. Lipstick and fashion are not what makes a woman. Femininity is not found in chasing followers on Instagram with your perfectly filtered pictures of your body or getting attention from the boys. This is not femininity. You discover womanhood in relationships, primarily with the opposite gender. And so practice this. You want to display your feminine instincts, your femininity, and your strength. Practice strengthening the honor of the men that are in your life. Your father, your grandfather, your brothers, your sisters, the brothers in Christ here at church. Be at peace with your body and know that God gave it to you as a gift to be honored and to use it to honor him. Help the men in your life by making up for their weaknesses and showing your complimentary strengths in ways that they need your help. This is what it means to be a woman. We are made in the image of God, male and female. Whether single, whether married, whether young or old, we are designed for complementary union to align ourselves with the beauty and the equality and the diversity of our gender to the glory of God's good intent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, Today, as we consider these things, may we have open hearts, receive with open hearts and discerning hearts. May you use it to, in our lives, to evaluate our own lives, our relationships that we find ourselves in, our habits. Lord, I want to particularly pray for my brothers and sisters who are in struggling marriages, Lord, that you would help use this message in the word of God to soften their heart toward one another, that they would seek that complementary oneness, that intimate alliance again, even if it feels dead and gone. Lord, I want to speak to the singles that are here, that today, that they would know that they are completely and in every way equal that, Lord, that you, in those times when the loneliness, they feel that loneliness acutely, would be reminded that Christ is indeed our bridegroom and that he has given us a family to fill in those holes in our life, Lord. Give deep meaning and purpose to our singles. Help us to care for them well. And, Lord, for the young people that are here today, May you inspire these young men and women, give them a vision of their life beyond what culture is trying to give them. May they say no to things that are damaging in their life and yes to the the vision of masculinity and femininity that you've given in your scriptures. We need men and women like this, Lord, in our world today. Bless us because we sat under your teaching today. In Jesus' name.
Amen.